This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds and Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how inadequate data may be impacting your used vehicle department at reyrey.com slash used cars. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash used dash cars. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit, in for Kellen Walker. Today on the show, GM names a new North America chief. Tesla recalls more than 2 million vehicles for autopilot safety flaws. And the FTC finalizes rules to crack down on junk fees and bait and switch tactics. Plus, Chinese auto industry expert Michael Dunn joins the show to talk about tensions related to EV tax credit rules. There's a famous Chinese expression that goes like this sleeping in the same bed, dreaming different dreams. That's exactly Mm -hmm. where the U.S. and China are today. (laughs) Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors has named Marissa West, the head of its Canadian business, as president of North America. She'll be the first woman to serve in that role for GM. The automaker is also promoting other executives to new roles as product development chief Doug Parks retires. West succeeds Rory Harvey, who will fill a newly created position as president of Global Markets. GM says Harvey will work with regional teams around the world on product, software, and technology strategies. He has been president of North America since June. West has been president and managing director of GM Canada since April 2022. In about two decades at GM, she has had numerous engineering roles. They've included executive chief engineer for GM's global midsize truck and medium-duty truck programs. She was chief engineer of the 2020 GMC Sierra HD and Chevrolet Silverado HD. GM says all of the changes are effective January 2nd. Meanwhile, GM says it is extending downtime at several North American assembly plants for maintenance and product changeovers. The automaker says all of its plants will be down the week of December 25th for the contractual holiday break. Fort Wayne Assembly in Indiana, Factory Zero in Detroit, Spring Hill Manufacturing in Tennessee, and Oshawa Assembly in Ontario, Canada will stay offline the following week for maintenance. All four plants are expected to resume production on January 8th. GM's Lansing Grand River Assembly Plant in Michigan will be down the week of January 2nd in conjunction with the end of the sixth-generation Camaro. GM says the Lansing plant will resume production January 8th. Orion Assembly, north of Detroit, will remain idled for more than a year after it stops building the Chevrolet Bolt EV and EUV next week. The plant will then be retooled for electric pickups. But GM has pushed back the start of truck production at Orion until 2025. GM said its Wentzville assembly plant in Missouri, which builds the Chevrolet Colorado and GMC Canyon midsize pickups, will be down the week of December 18th because of an unspecified part shortage. And the Cami plant in Canada has been idled since October because of a battery module supply constraint. It's expected to restart production of electric commercial vans for GM's Bright Drop business in the spring. Tesla is recalling more than 2 million vehicles. That's after the top U.S. auto safety regulator determined its driver assistance system, Autopilot, doesn't do enough to prevent misuse. 
The recall spans all Tesla models except the Semi and the Roadster. It affects the Model S, X, 3, and Y in versions that are equipped with auto steer. That's a hands-on-the-wheel beta feature that detects lane markings, other vehicles, and objects to help the driver steer in certain situations. Tesla told NHTSA it will release an over-the-air software update to correct the issue. The update will add more controls and alerts to encourage the driver to remain engaged in the driving task, including keeping their hands on the steering wheel and paying attention to the road. The move is the result of a years-long defect investigation by NHTSA that will remain open as the agency monitors the effectiveness of Tesla's fixes. A NHTSA spokesperson said the probe found that Tesla's means for keeping drivers engaged were inadequate and could lead to foreseeable misuse. And auto dealers will be barred from luring vehicle buyers with promises they don't keep and will not be able to charge junk fees under a new U.S. Federal Trade Commission rule. It takes aim at practices the FTC says cost consumers $3.4 billion a year and prolongs the vehicle shopping process. The rule takes effect on July 30th of next year. The rule could fundamentally change how millions of Americans buy vehicles each year by requiring upfront pricing in dealers' advertising and sales discussions, and it bars the sales of any add-on product or service that has no benefit to consumers. The rule has attracted sharp criticism from the National Automobile Dealers Association. NADA has called the rule, quote, premature, legally deficient, factually inaccurate, and exceedingly confusing for consumers and dealers. And those are today's headlines. Uh, Jamie, I want to ask you about this Tesla recall. Of course, having to recall more than 2 million vehicles is a lot, uh, but it seems like maybe this actually could have been worse for Tesla. Sure. It could have been a lot worse. You know, there's a little bit of headline trauma from the, the 2 million figure uh, getting out there and the fact that it's officially a recall, but it's not going to be as expensive as a standard recall because it's just an over the air software update. Uh, Tesla can push those out very quickly and efficiently. And the other really big thing here is that the safety regulators effectively accepted Tesla's premise that the problem here is the consumers misusing the product, not that the product uh, claims to be more than it is, not that it has a misleading you know, name to it. Uh, it's fundamentally about not letting people use it the way they think that they were that it was sold to them. It's going to be more annoying for Tesla customers. That'll be one of the sort of subtle costs of it. Uh, People who buy Teslas, part of the appeal is that the car seemingly more than a lot of others will do the driving for you, even though it's not really capable of that. Uh, that highly automated driver assistance is still a feature they enjoy. And if the car keeps nagging them to pay attention and put their hands on the wheel, it's going to take away from their enjoyment of the of the product. Is this the end of the road for this discussion, or uh, do we have more uh, Tesla legal uh, battles down the road? Tesla still has a, has a lot of legal challenges ahead of them, but this clears a big one off the decks. All right. Well, coming up, Dunn Insights CEO Michael Dunn joins us to talk about how new EV tax credit rules will likely affect the Chinese auto industry and its relationship with the U.S. starting in 2024. 
That's next on Daily Drive. Lack of inventory, increased auction fees, and a volatile market means stocking your lot can be challenging these days. To be successful, you have to move fast. You need to make decisions quickly at auction. You need to inspect trade-ins and decide on an offer that will benefit you without slowing down the sales process. You need to appraise and price vehicles with the most up-to-date information possible in a market that can change quickly. But the data you rely on to make these decisions could be holding you back. How often do you find yourself manually filtering through comps because there are outliers that don't match the vehicle you're appraising? When unexpected mechanical issues come up, how much time do you have to spend looking back through comps to reprice the vehicle and determine if the reconditioning costs are worth it? How long do you spend searching through individual auction and third-party websites for the inventory you need? These problems affect the entire used vehicle process from acquisition to appraisal to merchandising. Visit rayray.com slash used cars to explore how old and irrelevant vehicle information may be holding you back and discover how to make improvements for faster, more accurate, and more profitable decisions. That's rey.com slash used dash cars. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. New electric vehicle tax credit guidance from the Biden administration underlines how challenging it is becoming for the White House to balance major policy goals in the Inflation Reduction Act. Starting January 1st, EVs will not be eligible for a tax credit if any of the battery components are made or assembled by a foreign entity of concern. Those include companies, including subsidiaries of U.S. companies, owned or controlled by China, Iran, North Korea, or Russia. In 2025, the exclusion also applies to critical minerals that are extracted, processed, or recycled by one of those entities. Michael Dunn is CEO of Dunn Insights and an expert on the Chinese auto industry. I asked him what this means for Chinese companies and their U.S. interests. I reached him in San Diego. Michael Dunn, welcome back to Daily Drive. Terrific to be with you again, Jamie. How are things? Hey, can't complain. But I've been puzzling though about China and the U.S. and uh, so, and you're you're the guy I go to often with these kinds of questions. So, 
you know, the latest, I mean, really big news here has been uh, the proposed rules surrounding the foreign entity of concern clause in the Inflation Reduction Act. These rules aren't really a surprise, uh, but I have to believe it's uh, not very welcome news in the People's Republic of China. Exactly. In fact, coming into the call today, Jamie, I was reflecting on foreign entities of concern, F-E-O-C. Let's just shorten it to its real name, China. (laughs) (laughs) That's the target. And where they've come down, the Biden administration is two tracks. On the one hand, they absolutely do not want to see a future in which Chinese cars are pouring into the United States and benefiting from any kind of incentives. So on the sales Mm -hmm. side, a double no-no. The Chinese are not going to get U.S. government money that way. However, there is a little bit of a passageway for Chinese battery makers to come in and invest in plants. And we've already seen some. There's AESC in South Carolina and Kentucky. There's Goshen trying to have a go of it in Michigan and Illinois. CATL, BYD kind of hovering around In that instance, it looks like the Chinese could get some indirect benefits from manufacturing here, creating jobs, contributing to the economies. So that's my takeaway. But it's the Biden administration's effort to sort of hold the Chinese onslaught at the gates Mm -hmm. as much as possible. You know, the thing that has been has me scratching my head is the lack of clarity around the licensing of intellectual property. I mean, which is so crucial to Ford uh, building a big plant in Western Michigan. And their plan is to say, okay, this is a U.S. owned plant with American workers. Um, We're just going to license this technology from CATL. Uh, but the, the way the rules are written, it seems still very murky whether those whether the batteries that come out of there would make a vehicle ineligible for the federal tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act. It's, do you have any insights on that or how is that playing you know, in China when they're looking at this? Like, what are we supposed to do? Well, think about it this way, Jamie. The Chinese more than ever need access to the U.S. market. Uh, growth at home is slowed dramatically. The profits aren't there anymore. So they're really hell bent on trying to get access to the U.S. market one way or another. And they'd love nothing more than to have a presence, whether it's their own plants or a licensing agreement with Ford. They've got access to this big, massive market with potential upside. So the Chinese want in for sure. Um, on the other hand, the U.S. government's looking at this and saying, hey, is there not a risk that if we do have this licensing agreement, we as Americans never catch up. They're always a step ahead of us. We're, we're still dependent on the Chinese for our know-how. And that's the sort of hesitation in D.C. Looks good on paper, but is Ford going to be able to make its own cells within the next three to five years? Or is this a forever dependent relationship? A lot of questions that we don't have answers to yet, right? <laughs> Hey, One of the things about this and this coverage, and you've said it a couple of times, you know, it's the Biden administration policy, and it is the administration writing the rules, you know, for the that the IRS will use and the Department of Energy. But these are really just putting into place uh, what was required by the law, uh, which was really shaped by Senator Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia, a big mining state. Um, this complexity or nuance is kind of often lost on an American audience. I, I suppose in China, there's 
nobody cares that this is the result of a messy legislative process. It's uh, they just probably see it as well. Biden's the president. America's a, a monolith. You're right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they have no notion of the complexity of shaping legislation in a democracy. Absolutely not. What they do fear, I think, is that they see, or at least they're told by their own leader, that America's intent on keeping China down. That's the narrative mm -hmm. in play when I talk to my friends in China. Oh, we're up and coming. We're the challenger. America just wants to suppress us. So they, that's the first thought that comes to mind when they see anything that's not welcoming out of the United States. You know, not welcoming is how it's been for the last several years. I mean, really, at least back to the 2020 election uh, season, you know, both Democrats and Republicans, you know, Biden and Trump, but everyone else in both parties really uh, campaigning that they would be tough on China. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a number of incidents since then that have just made things kind of worse and worse until last month. Uh, we had this meeting uh, between President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden agreed to resume some ordinary, you know, military to military and leader to leader communications, kind of maybe toning down some of the tensions between the two sides. How do you see the state of relations between the U.S. and China right now? All right. So there's a famous Chinese expression that goes like this, sleeping in the same bed, dreaming different dreams. That's exactly mm -hmm. where the U.S. and China are today. <laughs> from Xi Jinping's point of view, he'd love nothing more than to get money from the United States, from U.S. businesses. Come back, invest, jump in, the water's fine. You can make a ton of money here. So he wants money. On Biden's side, he's looking for time. Time for mm -hmm. what? Time to continue this decoupling and de-risking away from dependence on China. So... Both sides are sort of making nice on the surface. They are sleeping in the same bed still, but they definitely have diverging dreams. And so as an example of that, you mentioned the military talks. You know, we're mm -hmm. supposed to reconvene this very important uh, communication between the lead leading military figures on both sides. That has not happened. Even though mm. she agreed to it, the Chinese are being coy and saying, oh, yeah, it's not it's on our to do list, but we're not there yet. So. Yeah, that's the reality today. Leaves a lot to be desired. It does. So, you know, again, another example of this sort of uh, underlying tensions. Uh, we recently saw China implement export controls on graphite, you know, technically just a, a permitting process. Uh, but graphite is absolutely critical for making EV batteries. And mm -hmm. this struck me as a very Chinese approach. You know, it isn't overtly threatening. It isn't a, a hard cap, um, but it seems like there's a lever there where there could be you know, paperwork delays or other bureaucratic tactics that could deeply interfere with EV battery production in the United States or anywhere else in the world. Is Am I, am I being paranoid or is that basically what they're doing? But you're not being paranoid. You're just being your sense of awareness is extremely acute. Yeah. So exactly <laughs> like China today processes 80% of the graphite globally that goes into batteries. So they more or less have a monopoly over graphite and they understand that leverage. And at the same time, the U.S. is being tougher on chip technology. China is saying, oh, yeah, two can play that game. How much do you guys need graphite? I understand you want to build your own batteries over there in North America. What if we just put a stop on that or the risk of a stop?
So that's you're not paranoid at all. It's sort of China assessing leverage points and saying we enjoy enormous leverage in graphite and we're going to use it. Before I let you go, I want to probe a little more on China's thinking about exporting full electric vehicles. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, maybe it has been a while. I've been uh, doing this a long time. But it used to be that automakers in China, whether they were global automakers or local ones, would really stress that they were just there to produce for Chinese consumers, for an emerging middle class. Uh, that's not so much the case anymore. BYD in particular, among others, has really been looking beyond China, uh, certainly to Europe, uh, maybe North America. Is Are these brands, is BYD and others, are, are they significant threat to incumbent automakers in Europe and North America? Absolutely. Just as you say, what's changed is that the home market has gone soft and there aren't profits at home. China's redirected its energies toward exports. This year surpassed Japan to become the leading exporter in the world. Five million cars to more than 100 countries, virtually every country on the planet except the United States. You can bet that they are, I know they are, preparing now for the timing. When can we step into the United States? We have tremendous products at low cost. Boy, it would be terrific to get in there. They're looking at a tariff duty and, you know, a lot of other tensions that now define the relationship between China and the United States. So they're sort of saying we need to be patient, but we definitely want to get into the U.S. market. Michael Dunn, CEO of Dunn Insights. Thank you so much for joining me today on Daily Drive. It's a pleasure, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer, in for Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News journalists Lindsay Van Hulley and Audrey LaForest for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on EV tax credit rules, C-suite moves, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.